I'm going to spend some time now reading from the Bible. And our reading tonight is from Revelation chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 1 to 6, and then Lex will be doing the rest. And you can find that on page 878 in the Pew Bibles. So this is Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sands of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thanks, uh, Penny and Lex. Nice to see you. Haven't met my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Thanks to all those who've been praying for uh, Rachel and I on our honeymoon. We had a great time. It's good to be back with you and good to be preaching again. Uh, Revelation 20 is a bit of a, um, it's a cracker, isn't it? Uh, This chapter has, um, I guess, caused more division uh, and more debates than many other chapters of the Bible. Uh, Christians around the world today would disagree on it. Well-known, well-respected Christians around the world would have different opinions on this chapter. And tonight we're going to grapple with it. And the, the division all comes around that number a thousand years. Uh, when you heard it read, I'd be surprised if many of you thought that, year, that number a thousand years was, was really significant, but it is. That number has caused conflict, disagreement, argument, debate, and division in God's church. 
what I want to do tonight is just very briefly, for the first five minutes, just describe the three main positions. But more importantly tonight, I want to just walk us through the text to preach the word of God and allow God's word to speak to us and to teach and to train us. So here are the three positions. Uh, the first position is called pre-millennial. Uh, these Christians believe that, that a thousand years is a literal thousand year period and that Christ will return pre or before the thousand years. So here's the order. Christ returns to earth and he will reign on earth for a thousand years. And during that thousand years, deceased Christians will be resurrected to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And during that thousand years where Christ is reigning on earth, Satan is bound. And then he's released for a short time. And then it's the, the end time. Uh, the premillennialists would have what's called the, the Great Tribulation. Uh, where there's a period of intense persecution. And it's, they have what's called the Rapture. Uh, where Christians are suddenly disappeared and taken from the earth. And those who are so-called left behind, to quote a popular book, uh, will be asking, where have all the Christians gone? Uh, that's the pre-millennial position. Uh, many uh, popular, famous Christians believe that. People like John Piper would be pre-mill, uh, Wayne Grudem, many early church fathers like uh, Tertullian and Irenaeus, they were all pre-mill people. Uh, and if you were pre-mill... Uh, you would be a Christian who would be longing for Christ to return to the earth. If you were pre-mill, you would be praying every day that Satan would be bound. And if you were pre-mill, you'd be warning your unbelieving friends, don't be left behind, don't be left behind, don't be left behind. If I just had Revelation 20, I reckon the pre-mill position would be very attractive. My problem is I don't see how it fits in with the rest of the scriptures with the writings of Paul and with the words of Jesus. And also, my other problem is, why is a thousand years taken literally here, where that number a thousand years appears 17 other times in the book of Revelation, and it's always taken to be symbolic elsewhere? That's the pre position. I'm not a pre myself. The post position, the word post means after, is that Christ will return after a thousand years, and so if you were postmill, you would believe that we, the church, are gradually Christianizing the world. And we, the church, will overcome all the powers of politics and the false theology, and we will, will rule over this world for a thousand years, and then Christ will return. Uh, my problem with that position is that I don't see in the Bible that there'll be peace and prosperity here on earth. People like um, Jonathan Edwards were believer in the post-mill position. And if you were post-mill, uh, then you would be fervent in your evangelism. You'd be fervent in your mission because you want to Christianize the world so that Christ can return. I'm not pre-mill. I'm not post-mill. I'm what's called an amillennialist. An amillennialist would say uh, the thousand years is just symbolic like the other numbers in Revelation. It's an indeterminate period of time. It's a long period of time, but it's indeterminate. And that thousand years, it began with the resurrection of Christ, and it will end with the return of Christ. And so we are in the thousand year period. 
uh, and in this time, Satan is bound. He's still active. He's still tempting us, and he's still opposing God's church, but he's restrained in some way. And there will be the last days where there's a period of increased deception and increased persecution, and then Christ will return. That's the Emil position. That's my position. It's the position held by Luther, Calvin, Augustine, and most Sydney evangelicals today. Uh, And you might be saying, well, what's the whole deal with this? Why is it important? It is important because Christians divide over it. There's a, a story of a church in America. It has this, uh, this sign outside. It says this, uh, We are a pre-millennial, dispensational, pre-tribulation, single rapture church. And we welcome all people who are one with us in Christ. I want to encourage us and encourage you to grapple with the scriptures to come to your own conclusion on this, but please don't divide over it. Uh, To me, it's the issue a bit like baptism, a bit like the mode of communion or leadership structures. Christians can disagree on it. Our salvation doesn't depend on it. If you want to hear Christians debating it, go onto a, a website called the Gospel Coalition website, and you can hear Don Carson, John Piper, Mark Dever, Tim Keller, debating this issue, and they disagree on it, but they're still united in Christ. But tonight I want us to walk us through the text. Let's, let's grapple with the text. Here's my big question for tonight. Are you sure? Are you sure that you are really saved? Are you certain that you are going to glory? Are you absolutely convinced as you live in this world of chaos and turmoil and you live amongst a church that's divided, are you sure that you are right with God? Because that's why this chapter was written. To encourage Christians and to assure Christians that their salvation is certain. See, I keep meeting people who lack assurance and they're struggling, and they're not quite sure if they're okay with God, and they're doubting God. And for some, it's intellectual, you know, the historical questions. For others, they just don't feel close to God. The joy's gone. It's a bit of a mundane existence. Uh, But for most people who are struggling, it's that life hasn't panned out as they expected. So they didn't expect to still be renting. They didn't expect to have health problems. They didn't expect to uh, feel so lonely. They didn't expect to still be battling with that temptation of of lust or greed or jealousy 20 years after their conversion. And they're still battling. They're still struggling. And so they're asking the question, am I really saved? And that's why this chapter is written. To assure you and to encourage you that your salvation is is certain because of Christ. You've had those conversations with people where what they're saying just doesn't quite make sense. Something is not quite right with that conversation. And then you talk to somebody else and they give you, I guess, the the behind the scenes, the the missing information that, that gives you the aha, and it all makes sense now. 
That's Revelation 20, a kind of behind-the-scenes picture of what is really going on in God's world because sometimes it looks and it feels like God is not in control and it looks and it feels as though I'm not really saved. And this behind-the-scenes account has got to assure you and encourage you that God's in control and your salvation is secure because of Christ. And let me say, if you were a first-century Christian you would love Revelation chapter 20. Because if you're a first century Christian, every day you step out of your door knowing that today could be your last day and you could be killed for your faith. See, in those days, following Jesus didn't just cost you your lifestyle choices, it cost you your whole life. They need to be assured, and so do I and so do you. So let me give you three encouragements from Revelation chapter 20. Here's the first encouragement tonight. Satan is bound now. Let's grapple with verses 1 to 3. What does John see? I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. Do you remember the abyss from chapter 12? That uh, vast subterraneous cavern where all the evil powers are. And he has the key in verse 1, not to release them, but to keep them in, to lock them in. And he's holding in his hand a great chain. Who's that chain for? Well, look at verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's fascinating. There's four titles for Satan that we've met in Revelation. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, or Satan. They're all here in one verse. And John is saying, the devil, Satan, the dragon, the serpent, he is bound. Verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. What does John see? He sees... That ancient serpent, bound, restrained, chained, locked, sealed, restricted for a thousand years, for today, the age of the church. And John is saying to his readers, don't fear. Don't fear because Satan is bound. Sure, he's still active in the world. And we're told that in the rest of Scripture. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for Christians to devour. 1 Peter chapter 5. He's still going to tempt us. He's still going to attack God's church. And we're told in the rest of Scripture that it's Satan who still blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4. He wants to stop people from hearing the gospel. And yes, he's got his band of followers who, who listen to his lies and his false promises. John doesn't see... Satan destroyed yet. He's still alive. He's still active. He's still at work in the world, but he is chained. He's bound. He's restrained. He's restricted. Now, where else in the Bible do you see Satan bound? It's when Jesus steps into the world. And in Mark chapter 3, he said, Now I've come. The kingdom of God has come. The strong man has been bound. Where else do you see Satan bound? John 16, Jesus said, now the prince of this world is condemned. Where else do you see Satan bound? 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, talking about Calvary. It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And the whole of the scripture is saying, the, the, way that, the moment that Jesus stepped into the world, it was like Satan had been bad. Uh, the moment that, that, that Jesus went to Calvary, uh, it was a moment of victory because Satan had been defeated. He wasn't killed. He wasn't destroyed yet. That's still to come. But he has been bound. He has been restrained. And I know it doesn't look like that. I know often that we live in this world and it look like, looks like Satan's having a field day. But you've got to believe that his power is limited. Again, think like the first readers as they face death every day. I'm sure they were asking, is Satan really bound? As they watched uh, churches being torched, is Satan really bound? And John says, come with me, look behind the scenes, I'll tell you what's really going on. And yes, he's there in the abyss, chained, restrained, restricted, and limited. Now what does that look like for you and as we live today? It's such a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? It tells you that Satan can do nothing without God's say-so. Satan can do nothing unless God allows him to. Do you know the book of Job? There's a man who suffered greater tragedy than most of us will ever, ever experience. And that's because God allowed that terrible tragedy and allowed Satan to inflict that pain. But God was always in control. And God may allow terrible tragedy in your life, and real pain and real heartache, but God is still in control, not Satan. Remember that famous verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? It says this, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's Revelation 20. Satan's bound. So the tempter cannot tempt you beyond what you can bear. Oh, sure. Satan may dangle before you things to tempt you away from Christ. Satan may dangle before you that uh, that relationship you've always dreamed of that you know will lead you away from Christ. And Satan may dangle before you the, the success and the power of a career that you know will take you away from Christ. And Satan may dangle before you whatever it is in your life uh, that you really, really want to tempt you away from Christ. But he can't. He can't take you away because God is faithful. It means, if you grasp this, that unlike other churches, we're not constantly praying, bind Satan, bind Satan, bind Satan, because he's already been bound. What do you pray instead of bind Satan? You just pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Dear God, lead me not into temptation today, because I know Satan is bound. It also means that Satan can't stop God's word going out. He cannot stop God's kingdom growing. Sure, uh, he can snatch seeds and he can choke people, 
But ultimately, God's elect will come to faith. And God's church will grow and God's kingdom will grow. You ever wonder why the gospel reached Australia and why there's still churches in every town? It's because Satan was bound and restrained and God's word was going out. Uh, that changes the way we, we grapple with debates today, doesn't it? So at the moment, there's this massive debate about Scripture in schools. Uh, and yes, people of power uh, can try and stop the Scripture being taught to our kids. And they can use all their manipulative techniques. And yes, Christians must speak out and we must fight. But we're not afraid. We're not afraid because ultimately God's word will go out. And God's people will be saved. Because he's in control and not Satan. So if you've understood that Satan is bad, as a Christian, you wake up every day, you acknowledge you're in a battle. The battle is real. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. But you put on the armor of God, you put on Christ, you take out your Bible, you take your weapon of prayer, and you just fight. Fight under Christ's banner. That's my first encouragement. Satan's bound now. Second encouragement is this. Christians are reigning now. What else does John see in verse 4? I saw thrones. Thrones of a king. So who's on these thrones? Is it just Jesus? No. Thrones on which were seated those who have been given authority to judge. Who's given authority to judge? The souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. And because of the word of God. They hadn't worshipped the beast or his image and hadn't received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who's on the throne? Christians who stood fast to their faith and died for their faith. Men and women who, who loved Jesus so much and were so convinced the gospel was true, they were willing to die for it. Now, if you were a Christian in the first century, there weren't many other ways you could die apart from being killed for your faith. If you were a Christian in the first century, you wouldn't have to worry about superannuation and Alzheimer's and growing old because you, would, you wouldn't grow old because you'd be killed for your faith. And if you were a Christian in the first century, you would look like a loser. You'd think, it's not worth following Jesus. But this verse tells me that those who have died for their faith, they're not the losers, they're the winners because they're seated with Christ and they are reigning with Christ in the thousand years. That is now. And he said in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. They've been raised with Christ. They're part of Christ's resurrection. But it's not just them who are reigning. See if you can get your head around this. If you're in Christ now, you are reigning with Christ right here, right now. That's what the Bible tells me. Let me read verse 4 literally. End of verse 4. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Where have you heard that? That they lived even though they died. Remember John's gospel? Anyone believes they have passed from death to life. Or Ephesians chapter 2, 
because of God's great love for us, those who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ and raised us with Christ now and seated us with Christ now. That is the truth of the scriptures. If you're a Christian, if you're believing in Jesus today, you are part of that first resurrection. You're, you're, you're caught up with the resurrection of Jesus. And so the first death, that is physical death, is still a reality. Uh, but the second death is not a reality at all. That's why he says in verse 6, the second death has no power over those who are in Christ. And they'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. If you're a believer here in Christ today, look behind the scenes. You're seated with Christ. You're reigning with Christ. You're ruling this world. Christians really do reign. We do rule this world despite what it looks like because we're the ones with the words of eternal life and we're the ones with hope and we're the ones with security and we're the ones with any comfort and any confidence at all. Now, that would be a massive encouragement. There's a guy at church last night called Clement. He's going back to China, to his homeland. For him to know that even if he's killed for his faith, he's going to be reigning with Christ. That's a massive encouragement, isn't it? Uh, for Peter Tien in Burma, what a massive encouragement. He can be killed for his faith there, but to know that he's reigning with Christ, that's his encouragement. And for me and for you, whatever you're facing in life, to know that you're, you're part of the first resurrection and the second death has no power over you, that's a massive encouragement, isn't it? Now here's my third encouragement from this chapter. And we don't always think of this one as an encouragement, but it is. Judgment Day will come. Because John is longing for a day of justice and peace. And I hope, like you, John is longing for a day where there's no sickness and no suffering and no pain and no death. But that day can't happen until Satan is destroyed. You can't have a, a heaven with no sickness and no suffering and no death and no pain unless Satan is destroyed. If he's still alive, even chained, heaven is not heaven. And that's what John sees next in verse 7. When a thousand years were over, the last day is the end times. Uh, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go, go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. And in those last days, many nations will be deceived. Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, they, they're a picture of evil opposition to God's people, to God's Israel. And Satan's going to gather opposition for battle. And, and they're going to be numerous in their number. They're like the sand of the seashore. They are massive in number. The opposition to God's church is going to be intense. Verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. And you're thinking, God's church doesn't stand a chance. But, verse 9, click of a finger, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I love that, that no matter how big the opposition is, God can just wipe them out at just a snap of his finger. Because the devil is not the all-powerful one. Our God is. He devours them. And what happens to the devil? He 
the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. That is hell, where the beast, the false prophet, had been thrown already. And they'll all be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, the devil, Satan, is not having a party. The devil is going to be in hell, the place of unquenchable fire and eternal torment. And as, I, as I've grappled with this chapter this week, my mind has shifted from perplexed and confusion, saying, what's this chapter about, to kind of horror, but then just joy and delight, because I've grasped that in those last days, at those end times, Satan will be destroyed. And he can't tempt me anymore. He can't cause me to stumble anymore. He can't cause the, the sickness and the suffering and the pain in this world anymore. Because he's locked up in hell for all eternity. And you've got to be sure of that because you can't have the new heavens and the new earth. You can't have 21 and 22 without chapter 20. But John doesn't stop there. Verse 11, he sees a great white throne, white for a picture of purity. And I saw him who was seated on it. And whoever's on this throne is pretty powerful and holy and majestic because earth and sky flee from his presence. They can't stand before him. And verse 12, I saw the dead. And that's you and I, everybody, every man, woman, boy and girl that's ever lived, great and small, and we're standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Listen carefully. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Standing before the throne of God is every man, woman, boy, and girl, facing the judgment of an awesome, holy, majestic God. Great and small, verse 12. See, no one is so great they can avoid judgment day. No one is too powerful to say, I'll just buy my way out of it. And small. No one is too insignificant to God. No one can hide. Do you remember at school when the teacher was asking you all the hard questions and you didn't want to be asked the questions, so you just sort of stuck your head down and say, please don't ask me. You can't do that on Judgment Day. Whether you like it or not, you're going to stand before God and give an account. That's the message of the whole Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all, be, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews 9, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. God is going to judge, and that's a very very good thing until you realize what we're going to be judged on verse 12 the dead were judged according to what they had done verse 13 each person was judged according to what he had done now that's the scary thing Every thought, every word, every deed. All the stuff that we are so glad that no one else really knows about us. But God does. 
and they're logged and they are unedited and we will stand before him. And I'm guessing now that I don't need to tell you whether you deserve to pass or fail that judgment. You can't bluff your way through it. And if you've, if you've, if you've, you, you've got this, like the psalmist, you should be crying out right here, right now, Lord, if you marked my transgressions, who could stand? Evil must be punished. Heaven can't be heaven if I'm there with all my sin. And that's what we deserve. It's called a, a lake of fire, a place of eternal torment. It's called hell. But John sees another book, doesn't he? It's our only hope in verse 12. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And it's not a book of our deeds. It's not a book of what we've done. It's just a list of names. It's mentioned in chapter 3, chapter 13, chapter 17, the book of life. It's just a list of the names of the people who have fled to the Lamb for mercy. A list of the names of people who put their trust in Christ. And if you're in Christ today, I want to say to you, you can be sure. You can be sure your name is there. You ever been to a, um, I don't know, a wedding reception? And you turn up in your, all your, your smart gear and there's that, that moment of hesitation. Was I really invited to the reception? <laughs> you know, is my name on the table list? And I think sometimes Christians can approach Judgment Day a bit like that. You know, is my name really there? But if your trust is in Jesus today, if you're saying he died for me and there's nothing I can do to earn my, my salvation, if you're waking up each day and saying he's my saviour, he's my Lord, thank you Jesus, then you can approach that day with confidence. No doubt that your name is going to be there. It's like standing before God and he goes through the, the, the book of life and you get to the bees and you're going, yeah, Brooks and Brown and you get to the C's and the Coopers are there and the Cusworth are there and you get to the D's and it's like Dale is there and he goes, Andrew Dale, Mark Dale, Martin Dale, Nigel Dale, Paul Dale. And I'm going, yes, my name's there. Now, why is my name there? Why is my name in the book of life? It's not because of my deeds. My deeds are like filthy rags. My name's in the book of life because of the Lamb and because of His blood that was shed for me. And if you're here tonight and you're a believer in Christ, and I want to, to urge you and to encourage you to walk out here rejoicing and delighting and praising God that your name is in the book of life. And please don't allow any believer or any church to teach you that you have to do something to get your name in the book of life. And of course you want to do good deeds. Because the book of deeds are going to be opened. And of course I want my, my good deeds to be better than my, my bad deeds. But, but my deeds flow from my name being in the book of life. Not the other way around. That's my assurance from this chapter that my name's in the book of life and I don't deserve that. I deserve to be with the devil in a lake of fire. So why the delay? 
You ever ask that question? Why doesn't Jesus just come back and wrap it all up? If God really is all sovereign and all powerful, why don't you just come back now? Why not judgment day today? I could ask you to raise your hand now if you became a Christian in the last 15 years or 20 years. And that's the answer. Because God's chosen people have to be brought home. And you were one of them, and so was I. But there will be a day called Judgment Day when Christ will return. And there have been many here tonight rejoicing that their name's in the book of life. But I'm guessing there are some here tonight for whom verse 15 is a very, very scary verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I'm guessing there are people here tonight who are rightly worried. Because you know that if God was to judge you on your deeds and to judge you justly, that would be bad news for you. And perhaps you're here tonight because somebody loved you enough to bring you to church to warn you and to tell you about hell, but about a great Savior called Jesus. And we're about to sing a song that says, we must tell of his salvation because when the day he comes, it will be too late. And I'm just begging with you and pleading with you tonight that tonight's a good night to turn to your Savior to make sure that your name is in the book of life. So are you sure of your salvation? Are you certain that you're going to glory? You can be. Because Satan's bound now, he cannot tempt you beyond what you can bear. And if you put your trust in Christ, you're reigning with him now. And that day of judgment, you're going to be rejoicing that your name is in the book of life. And so I do pray you would leave here tonight. I'm not confused about amillennial, postmillennial, pre-millennial, but just rejoicing in the Savior and in his blood and in that great book of life. Let me pray. Our Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to the truth of our salvation. Lord, help us to, to wrestle with the scriptures, but to leave here secure and certain of our salvation. And I ask that for Jesus' sake.